Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We hear a lot about increasing tensions between some of the biggest states with respect to uh, air pollution controls and Washington, D.C., where President Trump uh, has taken a more lax stance with respect to pollution controls. I want to bring in Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, uh, which is based in Los Angeles, but she joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, and uh, Mary was crucial in uh, revealing the Volkswagen's diesel cheating scandal. Uh, she has talked in Germany about this. She also has taken uh, a really uh, a, a hard line with respect to tightening our standards. And I- I'm so glad that you're here. I- I'm wondering, is California headed on a collision course with Washington, D.C.? And-, and sort of how ugly could this get? Well, I hope not. We're trying not to uh, be on a collision course. We're trying to uh, continue along a path that began really many years ago, where uh, California generally identifies uh, a pollution problem and helps to identify the uh, technologies that could uh, could solve that problem and do it in a way that's also good for the economy. And then usually within a period of a few years, the federal government steps up and adopts the same standards. That's what happened at the beginning of the Obama administration when we locked in uh, a national program that combined fuel economy standards and greenhouse gas emission standards at the federal and the state level. So we've been on a path working collaboratively with the federal government um, for quite a few years now. Uh, When President Obama came in, he immediately indicated that he wanted to uh, put a halt and re-examine that program. And so we're in the midst of that process right now. It's not a foregone conclusion that the standards will change. And actually, um, the auto industry as a whole has indicated that they don't want to throw out this whole program 
what they're hoping to do in their terms would be tweak uh, the standards and the enforcement provisions a little bit, but not really uh, halt it. Now, uh, I think part of the rationale there is that they know that uh, getting better fuel economy is popular with the American public. It may not be the most important thing that people look at when they are making a purchase decision for a car or a light truck, but people really like it that the vehicles that are out there today uh, are so much more efficient than they used to be. But we're going to have to see what this administration uh, decides they want to do. Mary, explain to people perhaps the uh, differences between emissions uh, rules and regulations in California and in uh, other states, although there are some states that have similar emissions. And I'm wondering if there is a push to offer a more consistent national emissions program, because each state has its own. You know, you want to register a car, let's say, in California. If it's older than, I believe, was it 65 or 75, you don't have to go through an emissions test. So, you know, there's so many different differences between states. What characterizes California? Well, actually, there are only two uh, emissions standards. There's the federal and there's... Federal and California. Uh, Other states can, if they want to, opt into the California program, and there are 13 states that have done that. So it's basically the northeastern states and the Pacific Coast states, Oregon and Washington, uh, with California, and then the rest of the country uh, having the federal standards. But the good news at the moment is that although there are differences in some of the features like inspection and maintenance requirements and when you have to re-register and all that kind of thing. When it comes to the cars that are built by the auto manufacturers, um, they really now build them all to one standard because uh, we and the federal government agreed on the greenhouse gas emission standards uh, and have been pursuing a a common pattern uh, since 2012. We thought we had locked this in until 2012. 25, but now because of the Trump administration's uh, desire to redo uh, the so-called midterm review that was a part of that program, we're in a, a holding pattern at the moment while they decide what they want to do. Another front of this is that California has been requiring a higher proportion of electric vehicle uh, car sales. Does anyone want to buy them? Oh, yes. Um, So we now have 320,000 and change uh, electric cars on the roads in California. They're beginning to pop up in places, not just in San Francisco or L.A., where they're very visible. Uh, And because of that, uh, we are seeing a real increase. It still is one of those technologies that many people think is somehow pie in the sky. They're not really aware of how many different models of electric vehicles are available. But this summer, we saw a proliferation at county fairs of ride and drive opportunities where hundreds of thousands of people in total came out just to try out some of the new electric vehicles. I wonder how much uh, power it gives California from a negotiating perspective uh, that China and other countries are so aggressively trying to promote electric vehicles. So to to be able to say the automakers, look, from a competitive advantage, you need, you need to go for this. 
Well, uh, we like to think that our uh, stance as having been pioneers with promoting electric vehicles helped to get the companies to the point where they made the decisions to build these now very attractive models that are out there offered for sale. But China is on its own course, and obviously a mandate from China is going to have an enormous leveraging effect because there's such a huge potential market out there, and they're saying they're not going to allow any internal combustion engines at all after 2030. So just a period, don't even try. That that certainly gets the car company's attention in a way that even California can't do. Mary, do you and other members of the California Air Resources Board envision a time when we will have self-driving trucks and that truck drivers will be more like airplane pilots with autopilot features rather than the way they operate now? I actually think that uh, trucks could be in some ways the ideal uh, place for some of the autonomous driving features to uh, be introduced early because they have so many safety features associated with them. Um, I myself uh, leased a a new car uh, just Two years ago, I hadn't bought a new car in years. I won't bother to justify that, but just say I'm cheap. Uh, But (laughs) the fact is that cars nowadays, you know, anything um, above the least expensive car already comes with certain features that I had never heard of before, like something that beeps at you when you cross over the white line and, you know, a light that flashes in the rearview mirror that tells you when there's somebody coming too close to you. These are things that um, are tremendous safety features. But if you put them into a truck, it's going to make a huge difference because the trucks do so much more damage. Thank you very much. Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, speaking to us here at our Bloomberg 1130 studios. This is Bloomberg. We want to turn our attention now to the world of equal pay for equal work. And Bob Moritz is the chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers International. And the PricewaterhouseCoopers has just put together the He for She Impact Report. And here to tell us more about what it revealed, Bob Moritz. Bob, thanks for being with us. Uh, maybe you could just give us some of the highlights for uh, the results of the annual report. Sure, I'd love to. Um, first, the He for She initiative is something that the UN sponsors, which is a effort to get more men uh, in the business of supporting women, both at a corporate level, at a country level, and at an educational level. And we had 10 impact champions from university, 10 country leaders, as well as 10 corporate leaders, uh, exemplifying what we're looking for uh, individual organizations and individuals themselves to do. So what the report focuses on is what progress have women made. It provides some insights and hopefully some inspiration for the 30 organizations, the 10 by 10 by 10, in terms of what they've done in their own organizations, countries, or institutions, and exemplifies the benefit that can come from it. So, for example, we heard from the president of Malawi, who changed laws to allow for and eliminate uh, child marriages um, that put more women in the education system that allowed for them to have job opportunities thereafter. We heard from university presidents in terms of what they were doing to deal with uh, sexual assault and discrimination. And we heard from the corporates, both in terms of what they're doing to increase the number of women 
both in leadership roles as well as to move forward with uh, pay equity, as well as what corporates are doing to help in the education system to enable women to have bigger opportunities, particularly in the STEM research areas that are important to the future of work in various countries around the world. Bob, in the U.S., what is the major obstacle to uh, women having more prominent roles in organizations? From our perspective, what we see is it's a combination of the unconscious preferences or biases that come out of organizations. Um, If you think about board roles, for example, um, there's very few women on boards today, and those boards are responsible for picking the new CEOs. Um, So it's not surprising that there's a bias um, that might come um, from that. But nonetheless, we've got to do more to get more women um, at the top of the house in these boardrooms so there's a different perspective. And when you have women on the boards, our own study has found actually diversity becomes an important factor in thinking about leadership succession. If the men are in the room, it's not the one, two, or three issue that's top of mind for them. Um, The second thing I would say is that we've got to make sure that organizations do a much better job with their talent management succession planning and making sure that the women have the opportunities uh, because the women are equally qualified to do these roles. It's a a matter of creating the opportunity for success, being business unit leaders and driving that. And this is where data becomes important. What we have found is there's tremendous amount of data now demonstrating where policies need to change, where perhaps leaders might have those unconscious or conscious preferences or biases. And the data can allow for organizations to pinpoint what changes you need to make in an organization and where the effort should be pinpointed for hopefully turning the actions into better results and better outcomes. You know, maybe I'm just revealing my bias here, but in my experience, a lot of it does come down to child care. And if the woman is the primary caretaker, uh, which usually that is the assumption, she is going to uh, prefer to have a lighter schedule and a less prominent role in order to take care of her family. Sometimes it's not even a preference. It's a, it's a mandatory kind of reality of life. So, I mean, what, 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 what would you say to that? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely one of a few issues that actually have to be dealt with at the corporate level. Um, and here's what we see organizations doing. So, for example, with us at PwC, we put in a number of different policy changes. So i uh, give you another stat, which is when p- women leave for maternity leave, out of sight, out of mind, more than one year, and they come back into the system, because they're out of sight, out of mind, there's automatically a decrease in their rating and assessment of their performance. Why is that? It's probably because they were out of sight, out of mind for a period of time, or there might be some kind of unconscious behavior for it. So we as a PwC organization change the way in which we do evaluations for women that have left on maternity leave um, and giving them a two-year period where we're saying, hey, listen, if they come back and they're doing good work, their assessment should not change. Second thing we've done is provide more opportunity for flexibility. Uh, we've got more women that are being promoted at a senior level that have flexible schedules, and we need to role model them and put them in places more accepting. And third, we're actually putting in more support care um, to make sure that there's an opportunity for them to leverage tools um, and other methodologies as well as other support groups to deal with the child care issue. So there's a big opportunity, but it causes the management teams to look at that data and then take the appropriate actions necessary to address that data. Uh, What you do with women is much different than what you need to do to overcome some of the challenges with minorities, for example, men or women. Um, So I think that's where people have got to be very tailored. There's no one silver bullet or one size fits all. Well, well, Bob, I mean, I understand all these initiatives, programs, and, you know, management training efforts, but why don't you just pay people more money? 
I mean, why do this? What's the incentive? I mean, it may sound great and it sounds fair, but if you're a manager who isn't going to get any financial uh, bonus or any financial incentive to, let's say, hire women or make women more prominent in the organization, wh why wouldn't you just use the incentive of pay people more for doing whatever it is you want them to do? So I'll take your, your point and sort of flip it a little bit. Um, there's organizations now that are much better, and we made a change about three years ago. It was one of our commitments to he for she, which was to put a diversity index in place that caused us to get very specific with our leadership teams around expectations, where now there's risk and reward to their compensation model, to your point. right? How do they actually lead by example, let's incent them, but now we can pinpoint with the right data where people are not doing what's needed, and therefore there's a negative or a negative implication to their compensation. So you do have the data to say who's doing things quantitatively as well as get a sense qualitative with some feedback processes. You can adjust accordingly um, compensation for your leadership team if you're very specific on accountability, and you hold them accountable very specifically in terms of your assessment on their performance as well as in the compensation that they receive. Bob Moritz, thank you so much for joining us. He is chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers International Limited, uh, which is based in New York, and uh, they just put out this He for She Impact Report, uh, a lengthy look at what the obstacles are to getting more women and, uh, and a broader diversity of employees into positions of power and earning more. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, there has been an escalating war of words and threats between North Korea and the United States. The latest is that North Korea is threatening to test a powerful nuclear weapon over the Pacific Ocean in response to uh, President Donald Trump's uh, threats and increased sanctions on the country. To give us a sense of what's at stake here, how much more this exacerbates the tensions here. I want to bring in Scott Seaman. Uh, he is the director for Asia uh, at Eurasia Group, which is based in Washington, D.C. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, this seems alarming. I'm wondering at what point does this escalation of words bleed over into uh, escalation and actual physical combat? So we still attach a pretty low probability to the risk of, of an actual military conflict. Um, and that's talking about a wide range of scenarios, everything from uh, someone starting intentionally uh, an attack to an accident or miscalculation uh, kind of getting out of control and, and pushing in a direction of a larger conflict. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not overly concerned uh, at this point that this rhetoric that we're seeing is really escalating uh, the chances of something going uh, awry. 
but certainly the threat to send a missile someplace over the Pacific and detonate it, uh, that adds a new element that the U.S. and other countries are going to have to take into consideration. Scott, uh, in the past month, uh, North Koreans have launched two missiles over Japan. They tested a sixth and powerful nuclear device. They described it as a hydrogen bomb, and that follows two successful test launches of intercontinental ballistic missiles in July. If they try to put both of those technologies together, what could the United States or its allies in Asia do if indeed they tried to launch and test a hydrogen weapon in the atmosphere over the Pacific Ocean? So the range of options, everything from some sort of a surgical strike uh, to try to eliminate some of the capabilities that uh, result Preemptively? In uh, I don't think preemptively is, uh, you know, unless there was intelligence that said that the North Koreans were fueling up a rocket that was going to threaten uh, the United States or an ally with an actual uh, nuclear weapon. No, I don't think a preemptive strike is probably in the cards. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to be watching to see what kind of preparations the satellites uh, give us an indication that the North Koreans are doing. And certainly there'll be a whole range of options that military leaders here in the U.S. and, and elsewhere will have to sit down and start thinking about now. You know, I have to wonder what the reaction is within North Korea among the common folk, uh, because these increased sanctions are only going to exacerbate uh, food shortages that have been brought about by the worst drought since 2001 in the country. Uh, is there any chance of rising political tensions within North Korea? I doubt it. Uh, I think we've been hoping uh, for that for decades, and and it hasn't happened. I think the normal people, the people who are outside of Pyongyang, who are not part of the government elite, uh, they're simply trying to get through, uh, you know, every day. Um, I don't think that the economy is in a state right now that we're looking at starvation, uh, famine on the scale that we saw under Kim Jong-un's father, for example. The economy seems to be performing relatively well, so they've got quite a bit of a cushion. Uh, so I think the chances of some sort of a, you know, a political crisis or, or an uprising uh, would, you know, it's extremely remote. And again, we've been hoping for that for decades, and it just hasn't materialized. You know, Scott, uh, despite some people's lamenting the increasing uh, war of words between Kim Jong-un and President Trump, some others say that actually this is just highlighting a problem that has been going on for a long time, that the situation uh, is coming to a head, not because of the uh, words, but because of what's been uh, behind it and what's been sort of uh, left for uh, future presidents to deal with. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that uh, that there has been some kind of material escalation since the beginning of the year? So I hate to, to go into assessing whether uh, previous governments in, in the U.S. or elsewhere could have done more, should have done more. Um, I, I think you can always say that probably more effort and time uh, could have been put into ensuring that we don't get to the point that we're at right now. Uh, but that's where we are. And certainly the pace uh, of development around these weapons that we've been seeing has greatly accelerated. Uh, people are talking about this being uh, a breakout, meaning that they have really uh, moved quickly towards eventually 
getting the technology that they require for a, a viable ICBM. So uh, this is moving all in the wrong direction. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that one part of the strategy to deal with North Korea is to ensure that this becomes a bigger crisis for China, hoping that that will motivate uh, Beijing to do more as well. Well, we know that the Chinese have just forbidden their banks to do uh, business, transact business uh, with companies in North Korea. That was announced earlier today. But just quickly, Scott, what do you think about the the uh, the sort of fear that people are not expressing? I'm looking at the uh, Korean stock index. It is up more than 17 percent year to date, and it doesn't seem as if investors care. I'll give you about tw- 10 seconds. Yeah, no, uh, we, we've seen the market uh, really kind of shrug off a lot of this. Uh, part of it is probably because this is so this is so, such a, a common occurrence. But um, I think the market is probably needing to, to uh, spend a little more time looking at this issue. Well, uh, I guess that's a diplomatic way of saying no one's afraid, but it might not be bad to look over your shoulder at least a little bit. Thanks very much. Scott Seaman, he is the director of Asia for the Eurasia Group, giving us his thoughts on uh, the turmoil that exists on the Korean peninsula. As I said, the South Korean stock index, the Kospi, up more than 7.5% so far. It is a bad day for Grubhub today. It is a very bad day because Amazon is looking at their business model and saying, we can do that too. Uh, To tell us more is Craig Giamana. He's consumer reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us now. Amazon.com is about to get into the, or deeper into the food delivery business. What's going on here? Give us a lay of the land. Yeah, so they have, um, they've had Amazon restaurants for a while. I think they started that in 2015 in Seattle. You know, it's, it's still pretty small, and I don't think it's quite crossed over into, you know, mainstream appeal, and they haven't really attracted many national chains is the big thing. So the news today is that they're partnering with a company called Olo, which provides digital order and pay solutions for about 200 restaurant brands that have 40,000 locations. And they're going to basically make it easy for all of their customers to work with Amazon. So yes, this is Amazon making a big push into the restaurant delivery space, which has gotten more and more popular, it seems like, every year. Hey, Craig, does this mean that Amazon gets an exclusive with those customers? No. It doesn't. What it means basically is that if you are an Olo customer, you can easily tap into Amazon restaurants. So the feeling is that places like Shake Shack, Chipotle's catering business, that sort of they'll flip the switch and turn this on. But also what it does, this is a little bit in the weeds, but you know, there's Grubhub, there's Seamless. All of those businesses basically provide these restaurants with a tablet that they have to take to the back of the house. What Olo is saying is sign up with us and we'll integrate all that directly into your POS system, your sales system. So it's supposed to make it much easier for these restaurants to handle these orders. In connecting it to your point of sale system, can you envision a time when this is also integrated into the back end? So it's not just the point of sale, but eventually integrated into the uh, inventory control system, your supply chain. Because I was noting, for example, that Amazon, you know, is looking to get into a lot of other businesses. And, you know, being in the restaurant supply or the food supply business, now that you have Whole Foods. Right might be something that they're thinking about. I mean, I don't think there's any question that they're thinking about that. That's what they do, right? There's a supply chain company. And the other thing that they do is incredible prowess with customer data. So that's why every time there's an Amazon press release, we see the stocks of Kroger go down, Campbell, General Mills. Today, we saw Grubhub go down. So this is Amazon going hard after the $1.5 trillion market for food. Half of that is grocery, half of that is restaurant, roughly speaking. 
We know they're going after grocery hard with Whole Foods. Now here they come for the restaurants. I'm trying to figure out, I mean, is this just uh, from a systems perspective that Amazon is trying to streamline things for, for restaurants, or are they also providing the delivery service force. They they provide the, the delivery. So, I mean, delivery has become more and more important for these restaurants. You know, McDonald's resisted it for years. There was concerns that the fries wouldn't hold up, that the food would arrive. It would take 20 minutes. It would be too long. McDonald's now has signed up with Uber Eats, which has become more and more popular. You can get McDonald's delivered at, I think, 3,500 stores. This is Amazon basically getting access to Olo's customers, which is a lot of restaurants. And then you'll basically put that order through the Olo system and then Amazon will deliver it. So, you know, Amazon wants frequency. They want they want to be wherever customers are and wherever people buy things often. So they want you going to that website. You want to order chilies or you want to order Shake Shack or something like that. Do it on Amazon. And while you're there, you know, buy a DVD player, buy some clothes, buy some Whole Foods products, whatever it is. Well, but I'm trying to understand what competitive advantage Amazon would have with the actual delivery. I mean, I understand from this from the computer systems, right. uh, but but a lot of these restaurants have uh, forces and Grubhub and uh, Seamless have entire, you know, work staffs devoted to this. That's right. That's right. And so it's very expensive to hire delivery drivers. You're absolutely right. So as far as the economics of sending a driver to pick up an order at a restaurant and then bringing that to somebody's house, the economics of that are not great. I think what Amazon sees here again is this is a growing piece of business and they want to be in there. So as we know, they're willing to take losses on businesses if they think that that's the thing to do. So I think your question is right, that the economics aren't great, but the frequency and sort of the loyalty and the ability to kind of just be the place that people go to buy things, I think is what they're looking at. Well, just to follow up on that, does it become a a potential location for Amazon? Every restaurant that is part of this Olo uh, project or family, then they can become a pickup location for other Amazon products. Right. So we, I mean, we've seen the Amazon lockers pop up in the Whole Foods. I mean, that happened like the day after the deal closed. So, you know, they haven't said that. I mean, but I don't think that that's a stretch to think that that could be where this is going. Again, this isn't an exclusive arrangement. So it's not like these Olo customers are going to only deal with Amazon. But again, that's where all this is headed. I mean, if if you're going to be, if you're going to go to drive to the Chili's to pick up your burger and your meal, sure, there's an Amazon locker there and you grab your package. I mean, that's not a stretch. No, but it does really kind of highlight the changing nature of the whole supply chain. Particularly, you're going to be able to save money on gasoline if they're going to do all the delivery for you. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Craig Giamona, he is our consumer reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. 
So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.